This is Death by DVD, and you are listening to Hank, the world's greatest. Here is a man with a philosophy who also appears every night in my dreams wearing a dirty red and green sweater. It's the Professor I. Alexander Nash. Wow, you've made me out to be some sort of child murderer, thank you. (laughs) I mean, I tried to also make you seem like an esteemed college professor at the same time, so I mean, there's some leveling. There's a yin and yang. And you know what the, uh, the awesome levels of this are? You possibly can hear a baby possibly crying in the background occasionally. <laughs> but don't be alarmed. I have not kidnapped a child to train to be the new Hank on Death by DVD. It's I, Alexander Nash's uh, child, who is going to be a, a co-host, maybe. We'll I'll see. Keep it, I'm, I'm keeping this one alive. This Keep one. it alive, baby. The last eight. Oh, cut that. Never mind. That's... <laughs> Never mind. There's shit already just flying. Um, Yeah. Ooh. I'm just going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> so this week's episode is going to be something, it's a blast from the past, I guess you could say. Back on the live days of Death by DVD, we had a lot of fun, different segmented shows, each and every one of them offering something completely new and different. My favorite of them was Philosophy of the Dead, where we would take a director and uh, have a philosophy about them. This is the first time it has returned on the Death by DVD redo or whatever we're calling this for the first time since the live era. I, Alexander Nash, has a theory pertaining to this director, a philosophy rather, theory is poor wording, pertaining to the director that we're going to be discussing tonight. A thesis, if you will. Yes, a a thesis on this director. And for the most part, I am here solely to kind of help project this and maybe uh, interject questions more or less along the way because this one is your baby. You've got a whole idea behind this, and I think it's a great idea. What's one I've been trying to do for a few months now, and then you just didn't want to take it. I don't want to watch Wes Craven movies, and I'm like, and too I bad. finally did. I got to it, and I got excited, and I got ready to do the show and scheduling. Just uh, We had Christmas and then New Year's, and it, it's just the last month or so has been a lot of weird scheduling, and it just... I got to the point I was excited and finally ready. Like, let's do this. I'm pumped for it. (laughs) And we never got to. So it's been like six weeks since I've seen any of the films we're going to be discussing. Well, it's probably been a hell of a lot longer for me. But I've had these theories for a while now. And it's not all Wes Craven films. Because the basic thesis statement is Wes Craven has made a lot of movies that either are about class class warfare or um, how classes interact with each other, like uh, the class structure. Um, This won't be a show about capitalism, folks. It's going to be mostly just about um, how, you know, different class structures interact with each other and how that can be good and bad at times, mostly bad in Wes Craven films. A lot of the times I think, too, it's not just specifically class. I think a lot of it comes down to the realization and dealing with racism and the the constraints and structure of racism in the United States and a lot of people not wanting to realize or face it. A lot of uh, white middle class people that were hippies that think 
well, we were part of the peace and love generation, and it's just not around anymore because it's not in your backyard because you're not willing to deal with it. One of the films especially, I think it's really, really a relevant theme in. And uh, it's not that I didn't really want to sit down and go through the body of Wes Craven's work, but for, I, I'm just not a fan. I don't know how to say it pleasingly, and I definitely don't want to piss off the audience because he is responsible for some of the most beloved work in the horror genre. But there's just something about Wes Craven that has never affected me. It's very, very specific. One of the films tonight does affect me, one that's not on the list I'm a big fan of that I watched for apparently no reason this week. And it's it's really hard outside of personal opinion, which I think is something with criticism and film criticism especially people kind of forget and don't want to acknowledge. It is opinion, and, and personally I just don't dig Wes Craven that much. I'm sorry. Well, Wes Craven, much like Steven Spielberg, has made some of the like greatest horror movies of all time. Steven Spielberg made some of the greatest movies of all time, as a lot of people would uh, throw out there and project. But also they've made some terrible fucking garbage. And movies we won't be talking about tonight are things like Shocker. Um, we won't be talking about any of his newer work, like his stuff in the 90s. If you were um, excited so- for Scream 4... Get get bent, but I guess we did. <laughs> we're announcing it at this point. I don't think we've actually said the subject matter. This is Death by DVD's philosophy of Wes Craven. Yeah, so let's just go ahead and start with the first film and how it can interact with the um, idea of classes viewing themselves as differently or at like some sort of crossroads with each other and how they relate. Um, and it would really actually start out with Wes Craven's first real film, not one of his pornos. Uh, it's Last House on the Left. Which, I mean, let's talk about that for a second. He didn't just do a couple softcore porns, and recently we were talking about on a Death by DVD, Video Nasties A through Z, Abel Ferrara, he had done a couple porns, namely Nine Lives of a Wet Pussy. But it seems like Wes Craven did a lot of down-and-dirty butt-fucking movies, and it wasn't like one or two. He appears, I believe, in the documentary... Is it Debbie Does Dallas or Deep Throat? I think it's Deep Throat. I think he appears in that documentary and talks a little bit about his early history. But he was a film professor before this. Well, not a film professor. That's actually completely false inc- correct, uh, False information. He was a professor. I believe he was a humanities professor, and then he taught high school for a brief period of time. And he was friends with uh, Harry Chapin, you know, the really depressing song about not getting along with your dad, that guy, Harry Chapin. He knew his brother and ended up becoming a film editor where he still to this to this day he's dead I'm sorry until the day he died claimed uh, Chapin taught him the nut and bolts of being a film editor and in that period the super greasy awesome mafia run New York porn era he started shooting a lot of butt fuckers I mean like some Jamie Gillis dick in the butt what a polite way of putting that (laughs) You know, some of the butt-fucking porn. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it wasn't just like he made some soft cores or things with nice lighting. He wrote and directed some, you know, sodomy porns, and that's really what projected him. But they were really well-edited butt-fuckers. I could be wrong with my information here, and I'm just trying to be as crude as possible to fill a little bit of time. But it is really unique when you move into Last House on the Left how much, as I like to say, grease Wes Craven had had, you know, up to the elbows with and his experience. And I think that certainly motivated his career is knowing how to shoot people having anal sex. A lot of it comes from his days as a college professor as well, because Wes Craven has always been uh, because horror directors are always referred to as like different kind of concepts. Like George Romero was always kind of referred to as Uncle George. Lloyd Kaufman is Uncle Lloyd. Wes Craven and I always refer to as the professor because he always seemed to get in 
incredibly deep into his ideas into film, even the ones that don't particularly work or he didn't get across. I mean, we'll be talking about Nightmare on Elm Street a little bit later, but he always tried to talk about the primordial fear of the claw, as in when you're being attacked by a bear back in primordial days, and that's a fear that we've taken with us forever and ever, and Freddie's sweater being red and uh, green and how that's the hardest color on the eye. So he'd always go into deep research on what he was trying to do with a film, and I think a lot of his films he really pushes that forth through the narrative, and a lot of the, and a lot of other films I think he just kind of did for money or just didn't care particularly. Like, something like Deadly Friend, I mean, you could really reach for it and say, well, there's something here about you know middle class lifestyle and living in the suburbs. But at the end of the day, that was like it's a book. It was a director for hire job. It really doesn't fit. Plus, it it doesn't fit my my whole concept or my thesis. So we won't be talking about that film either. But we will talk about Last House on the Left. And I mean, most people know the story of this. Of I mean, it's the Virgin Spring. It's teen girls get, coming into contact, and it's every like middle class suburb nightmare of your teenage daughter going into the city and coming across some real tough customers and you know being raped and murdered and it's like every parent's worst dream fun fact all my nightmares are actually themed by a david hess soundtrack as is last house on the left possibly one of the most beautiful things about this movie and it's something that you can you know even compare to like dario argento a subject that we've talked about a bit lately how wonderful those goblin scores are and you know even um like bird with the crystal plumage before he worked with claudio simonetti and goblin it had a really surprising soundtrack that was almost pleasant uh, something that john carpenter borrowed for the effects on halloween but david hess's entire performance in the soundtrack of this movie makes it such an uncanny thing it makes it so fucking creepy and and, and un completely unsettling Especially the banjo. Well, it's the it's the counterpoint of this very kind of not always upbeat, but very classy folk music that plays throughout the film, uh, which is counterpointing to the extreme level of violence, especially for the, the 70s at the time period that is on display in the film. And going back to the, the every parent's worst dream of your children being abducted and murdered. I mean, that is on the TV every day that is being pushed to, I mean, even in politics now of the other, the other coming to take something from you, the, the people from the city are not like you. They're dirtier, which could also be code for certain things like dog whistling for racism. Not so much in this film, but it's, it's all dog whistles for somebody's going to come and take everything you've worked for. And last house on the left is no different than any of those horror stories that are on the news every day about crime infiltrating your, peaceful suburban home that you've worked so hard for well look at the parents i mean you've got even a display of that with the best friend that they are upset with who their daughter is going out with they don't like phyllis they don't want her to be around phyllis's type so you don't even have that sort of encroaching fear that it's people from the city or outsiders or like you mentioned a dog whistling for racism you've even got something as simple as class warfare which will be the entirety of the point but that's even the thing like is it really phyllis's fault they get into trouble sure you could pin it on her if you wanted to but it's the exploitation of the upper middle class and krug and company don't know mary's background they know nothing about her it's just the different levels of what is coming into your backyard and what you start off with even before you're introduced to krug and how awful these misanthropes truly are it's the mother's hatred of Phyllis Stone just because 
maybe she comes from a bad area or a bad background. It's not really important why she well, doesn't she's like Well, she's trashy her. and a, a whore, according to them. She's not to be trusted in some way, shape, or form, i.e. probably poor. She's poor, and she's going to lead her daughter down a wrong path, and she's destined for college and all these other things. We sh- She can't be hanging out with the poors. And you hit the nail on the head with the uh, term class warfare because that's what this one is specifically about as well as uh, another one we'll be talking about here in a little bit, that this is a battle of the classes. Uh, because once all is said and done, the atrocities happen, the uh, the evil fucking people from the city come in and murder the daughter, come into contact with the parents, it becomes this whole thing of, especially in Krug's eyes, he sees these people as looking down on him the entire time, that all I'm doing is trying to make my way in this world, and you sit here in your suburban home and you look down on me as being this complete piece of shit. And what we realize through the, you know, the entire uh, towards the end of the film is even when you're pushed to your extreme, like the white suburban family is, even they will resort to violence and revenge tactics to get what they want. So the two sides are not so different. And that's the main idea of last house on the left is violence is not something like, reserved specifically for a a specific type of person. It's something that we all can engage in, no matter where we are in some sort of class structure, that we all have the capability of incredibly violent acts if we're pushed to it through whatever extreme. Now, is it making apologies for Krug and his company? Because, I mean, like, one of them's a junkie. Krug obviously has had a rough upbringing, blah, blah, blah. I don't think he's so much making apologies for them, but... He's also well, saying you're that you're given very explicit uh, and non-discreet explanations as to how monstrous these people are at the beginning of the movie, and I re- can't recall verbatim what they've all done. But Weasel is a child molester and has been arrested for peeping Tomism, I believe, is one of the things. Krug has escaped from prison. He's an absolute vile murderer, child molester. They make it very well known. The junkie character played by Mark Scheffler Jr., Krug's son, he's only a junkie because Krug has used that to control him, that he has gotten him addicted to heroin himself so he can completely have him as a pawn in his game. And then you've got Jeremy Rains playing Sadie, who uh, the former wife of Richard Dreyfus. I think her only, maybe one or maybe one other, maybe a porn, I don't know. But this was her major film role. All of them are given, you know, a, a reason to hate right off the bat. And all of these things, I think, are, like you had pointed out at the very beginning of this, things you hear about constantly on the news. A lot of the times, a lot of the times, in Trump's America, we constantly hear that Mexicans are going to steal our jobs and we're going to build this wall and the Mexicans are going to come and they're going to rape us and they're so awful. Take all of that and apply it to a situation like Last House on the Left and how the parents feel and try and put them, and I'm not saying villainize. I mean, even if maybe you have family members that are conservative and you, you still love them, which you should always still love people and try and see a difference in them unless they are just complete Nazis, then you have to give up hope on a situation like that. But you try and see the parents in a situation where they're the old guard and you might not agree with them. And, you know, they're they're the same type of people that thought the Beatles were just too loud. But you're given an exposure to them that they're still kind of hip. They have emotions. And what you're given at the end of the movie especially knowing how vile Krug and company is, at first it's like this great hurrah, like the parents, they fought back. But the murderous intent, how vicious the nature is, is a line in the sand that I think you really have to look at both sides. And like you were pointing out, you don't need to feel sympathy for Krug and David Hess and all of his people. 
you don't need to have an understanding as to why they're so evil, but you have to look at how so quickly the other side of this decided to do the exact same thing they were doing. How quickly it turned so murderous. And it's all encapsulated into one major shot in the film, and that's what West has done in a lot of his films, is after all is said and done, they've uh, gotten their revenge, they're sitting there, the parents are sitting there just looking at each other and looking what they have done. And they have a certain amount, I don't think it's so much grieving for their daughter as much as grieving for their own souls that they've been pushed to this this point in their lives as well. And to compare it to real life scenarios that are going on right now, you have an entire group of people who feel wronged by an election, wronged by all the these things that they consider to be their enemy. And what's their next step is, well, I'm always going to walk around strapped with a gun. I'm going to walk around with my fucking AK-47 in public to show you how much. And like, so the violence of the evil invader Mexicans, the people from the city, all these different things that you're afraid of, your next step is to what? Commit the same sort of violence and just like involve yourself in stochastic terrorism and do basically the exact same thing onto another person is and to threaten them. I feel threatened by you, so I'm going to threaten you right back. And that's what Last House on the Left is truthfully about is these two battling classes, one of which, yes, they've done despicable things, no telling what pushed them to this point it could be a rough upbringing, all these different things. But at the end of the day, these two sides are not very different at all. They all feel like they have a reason for the violence that they commit. Now, what reason is justified and not justified, that's up in the air to, due to, I mean, who you are as a person, all these other things. But at the end of the day, I think what Wes Craven is saying is neither really one of these sides is justified in doing what they're doing. Yes, their daughter was murdered, but at the same time, does that give them the, the like, coup de grace, to, coup de grace, not the right term, but the, um, the like, hmm, what word am I looking for? Tour de France? No, the Tour no. de France is a bike race. <laughs> Sorry. The um, the uh, the reasoning, the uh, the like, I I'm allowed to do this. I should be allowed to get my revenge, but you're just doing the same thing that they just did to you. Well, it's so... the dang old Mary Antoinette shit. You know, you want your cake and you want to eat it too. And you've got the whole uh, some of the things that the parents do is as questionable as some of the things that Krug and company she bites do. the man's dick off. That's where I was going. That's right where I was going. I mean, she performs fellatio on good old Fred J. Lincoln, may he rest in peace, and bites his dang old dick right off. I understand that this was provoked. I mean, it's a Rambo situation. They drew first blood. I totally get it. The whole point behind this is the actions behind doing these things and the reasoning behind doing things. And not always is it from the right facility. And it's a really hard discourse to have with Last House on the Left because of the things you're presented with. You have to have the imposed thought if you don't have children. What would you do if your child was fucking raped and murdered like in her backyard? What would you do to seek justice? But too, you have that duality of even something like do you agree with the death penalty? Do other humans have the right to cast that first stone, the eye for an eye? You've got a lot of biblical ideas and a lot of things that have been pushed into American culture. But that... what does that make you? Does that make you any better or worse than the exactly. people who just committed the atrocity? And that's really what we're examining here is, again, back to current events, you have people that think that they were cheated out of an election. So what's their next step is to cheat right back. And that's... Like, so you don't have any sort of 
it's just all hypocritical. Your entire value system is hypocritical because somebody might do something to me. I got to do it to them first. If you're going to fuck me, I'm going to fuck you first and I'm going to fuck you harder. And that's really not a way a society works. A society should not ever be based about revenge. And that's really where Last House on the Left is going with this is just at what point do we draw that line in the sand and we stick to our guns and don't do it? Because really, at the end of the day, they should have just called the fucking police. But they had to have the revenge. And when they did get that revenge, what did it turn them into? It turned them into bloodthirsty killers all the same. But you do have another notion in this movie that we have to take into consideration. They did call the police and the police were incompetent. Even in the early 1970s, you have uh, an exploration into the incompetence of the police that we are told our whole lives we are taught to protect and serve. That's what the cops do. They are there for us. If there's a problem, you call the police. When you're a kid, your parents tell you, if you get lost, go up to a policeman. They will save you. And of course, you've got the infamous, some of those that work forces are the same that burn crosses, quote, from Rage Against the Machines. What you were given in Last House on the Left is a vulgar display of fucking incompetency and the only light comedic nature in the entire movie, something I used to hate. If you go back and you listen to the Chaz Ballin Deep Red episode with uh, Roy Frumke, writer of Street Trash, Steve Bissett, one of the creators of Swamp Things, historic and infamous Deep Red writer Greg Goodsell. I actually talk about, this is 11 years ago, I hated the whole cop. I hated, uh, what is it, Harry's one of them, and I can't remember who plays the sheriff. The, the guy from Cobra Kai and the Karate Kid and the Fat Martin Sheriff. Martin Cove. Martin Cove. I hated that. It used to annoy the shit out of me, and as I've gotten older, the necessity and the importance of those sequences really helps fluctuate and push the movie's point even further. The cops are fucking losers. They Their car breaks down and you have this entire discourse of them with a woman trying to take chickens off the truck so the cops can ride with them. The buffoonism, which I know is not a word, but the buffoon- buffoonery. Yeah, the buffoonery, the general buffoonery that you're given from Wes Craven, I think, again, is part of this whole class war- warfare idea that you have aptly pointed out for this whole episode. The cops are useless. Go ahead and call them. What are they going to do? Are they really going to help you? Or are they just going to lie to you and be absolute bullshitters? Harry only cares about getting another fucking slice of cake, which it was Mary's cake in the first place. It was rude they cut it, I always felt. Very rude and classless. But hey, defund the police. That's my rant. I'm going to end it here. <laughs> hey, cab. They <laughs> yeah. couldn't even get on the chicken truck. Fuck them. Um, All cops are bastards. They could not get on the chicken truck. I'm done. But I think that's also what's kind of interesting about especially early Wes Craven is he doesn't provide you with any answers. He's not pointing you in any sort of direction. He's just pointing out the the hypocrisy from all sides of the situation and the whole situation but that's kind of the genius bad. i mean don't you think that's a lot of what makes especially i think early west craven and like the hills have eyes and last house on the left so effective are the things that he leaves to you and this is uh, maybe the he was a humanities professor and i think a lot of that comes forward with his work of literally the study of the human race even something as cheesy as shocker it's really relevant his examination of the i think white male cis mindset. I think that's something that really drives all of his movies. I mean, look at Krug. That kind of is... what Krug would definitely be for Trump. Let's put it that way. The character, not David Hess, <laughs> Krug would be 100% grab him by the pussy. And that, I think, is a lot of the mindset behind even Freddy Krueger. It is white cis men. And I think that's a big problem I had with the remake of Last House on the Left. It's a big problem I had with the remake of Hills Have Eyes is they left out... And we'll get into Hills Have Eyes here in a second, but in both remakes, the 
actions of the people getting the revenge of like saving their families is never viewed as being violent and they have something that they need to consider in their own minds. It's, it's justified in both of those movies. It's just like, yeah, fuck these pieces of shit and Hills have eyes. Fuck these mutant fucks. It's like, well, but you've given a piece of yourself over and you've become just as violent, just as deadly as what you hated the most. And you've become what you've hated the most. And in the remakes, it's just kind of like, nah, fuck them. They deserve it. And I think that kind of loses the point of both of those films completely. The Last House remake is set up almost like a crime caper. You've got this incredibly stylistic uh, Michael Mann almost intro to the movie with the huge car wreck and them finally pulling Krug out and you find out that he's alive. And then it turns into this very bland 2000s, hey, I saw a David Fincher movie, let's make it look like that sort of production. And overall, there's no feeling. And not only that, like here, oh, just to interrupt you for a second, one of the things that really bothered me is the daughter survives. So what the fuck are you doing putting this guy's head in a microwave? Send him to jail. What the fuck are you doing? The it's it's I think an overemphasis on American bravado. We caught that motherfucker and we killed him. Come on my yard. Revenge is good. Trespass. I dare you. Break into my house. I'll fucking kill you. And where what is that serving? And what does it do to take a life? There is no value and there is no point. And the the Hills Have Eyes remake it had a lot of potential, especially with the father and, and using that same red-blooded American and especially Ted Levine, a great performance actor, a great character actor in general. You carried it through and you had so clever similarities and then it really just turned into a, a CGI monster movie that had no value. And would just turn into a slopathon of fucking violence and justifiable violence. It's not that. the it's CGI. Like, well, this is not what the story's about. It's about completely separate things. And let's just go ahead and get into The Hills Have Eyes. Well, with this, too, I think we've uncovered a completely new subject matter with this whole philosophy of Wes Craven, because when it comes down to his violence, and we've brought this up before, Wes Craven kind of shies away from violence. He doesn't seem to relish in it. He doesn't seem to wallow in it. But when he does display it to you, the articulation is completely necessary, and it has an ulterior motive. It's not just violence for the sake of violence. There is always something much deeper to what he is presenting with you, and when you just show the violence, it doesn't solve anything. It doesn't have any of the glamour that Wes Craven had, because it, all of his violence is set up. All of his violence is given to you for a very specific reason, and it's uh, it's a ballet at that point. It's It's very beautiful when you get it and like we'll talk about this at some point but a nightmare on elm street when johnny depp dies that's a ballet that's really beautiful in the hills have eyes this is all very specific in one scene of the film where papa jupe is sitting there eating a member of the uh the white christian family that's invaded their territory the and he's just specifically talking about classism of how you've come in it's you're in or i'm in you're out this is my fucking area and I'll fucking do what I wish. You think you're better than me? And that's what a lot of this, it's class warfare in Hills Have Eyes. It's this family who's come into their silver mine that they it belongs to me. I purchased it. Well, there's a whole, I mean, if you want to get into it, like fucking colonialism, imperialism, that's there as well in uh, the Hills Have Eyes of just like you're going in a place that you don't know shit about that is full of somewhat indigenous people. Sure, they might be whole fucking freak cannibals, but at the same time, this is their area. You've invaded it, and now 
you're getting attacked and you're going, well, well why don't they just leave us alone? Because you, you're fucking with their shit. You're in their fucking backyard right now. But you've got even the basis of the story, and most Wes Craven work is either a rewrite of something, like we mentioned with Last House on the Left, Ingmar Bergman's Virgin Springs. In this case, it's based on the Scottish tale of Sonny Bean. And for the most part, when you research Sonny Bean, all you can find is that it was a family of Scottish cannibals that would kill highwaymen and, you know, eat them, and either rape them and have weird mutant babies, or eat them. But most of that comes down to, again, colonialism and everything that somehow becomes the topic and subject matter of Death by DVD because Scotland had been taken over completely by the, I don't know what it was called at the time period, the Imperial British Forces. And a, a lot of laws had been laid down onto them and a lot of class type and class warfare had been applied, especially for people of certain religious values. So... In a sense, this clan was completely pushed off the grid and map because of colonialization, and in turn, their only means of survival were kidnapping and eating people. And that's what Wes Craven took. They're not doing it for pleasure. It's not like they're hunt. I mean, they kind of are. They are hunting people, but to them, it is you're stepping on their land, and they need food. There is nothing else for them to eat unless they work with the guy at the trade center. And that obviously, you know, you get a whole backstory and you learn even more personal aspects of Papa Jupe and who everyone is because of this. But at its core, the entire point is they're surviving. That's all they're doing. They're surviving. Yeah, and it's a story about, again, it's a story about two different classes going to battle. One, and, uh, Wes Craven doesn't draw any lines in the sand in this one saying, well, one side is really right and one side's wrong. One side is definitely more brutal, more fucked up and all that. And of course our internal mechanisms will tell us that these cannibals are completely in the wrong. But if you really think about it, they're just living out there. It's a cannibal Holocaust situation. Who are the real cannibals? And that's with the ending of Hills Have Eyes. That's what Wes Craven's putting in is at the end of the day, he's trying to get his baby back. Yes, you want the man to get his baby back. You don't want the baby to get eaten. Of course not. No one wants to get the baby to the baby to get eaten but that's not true i want the baby to get eaten i wanted to see michael berryman eat the baby i i'm sorry (laughs) but um he's killing uh is it mars i believe it's mars he's uh like he brutally murders and we freeze frame on the the father's face and before the credits roll of he's become just as savage as they were because the only thing that's really separating these two families is want and need and that's what class does to us all. That's when we all become so violent. I mean, and the, the where we're at now in the pandemic where people are at is just some people are starving and other people who aren't starving is going, well, the big problem is we just need to get you to go back to work. I don't think like, why don't we just pay these people so they don't have to go back to work and get a hideous disease? Why are we not doing right by a certain well, amount. You well, you just don't understand. If, if you work every day, that's how you earn stuff. How am I supposed to live if, if you're just getting stuff? Well, I've worked every day, and I'm supposed to just not work no more so you don't have to work no more? Sounds like Mexicans are stealing everything. At the end of the day, what you're dealing with is you're dealing with people, and most of the people I've seen, what do they always talk about? I want to get my hair cut. I want to get... You want things to go back to normal. It has nothing to do with... I miss with... concerts so much, man. I've not been to a show in so long. I just miss hanging so out. So what? 
It's called fucking survival. That's the important thing. You don't care about people going back to work because you care about their survival. You want people to go back to work because you want things to go back to normal and you want your life to... I want the bars to reopen. Okay, so why are you so concerned? Yes, we need to pay people who work in bars, definitely, because they need to make a living. But at the end of the day, bars don't need to be open because it's probably not great and they'll spread disease around. So we pay them. Nah, fuck that. We got to get the bars open because I can't go home. I can't go home and see my wife. We got to go back to normal. The thing here, though, is all of it is under the guise of doing something good. I'm supporting local businesses, goddammit. That's what I'm doing. I, You need to open local businesses. This is fucking communism. We can't have things like this. What about my favorite bar? Name me every bartender. Name me every busser. What you care about are your own incessant needs. And that's, you introduce this family, and they're, they're just an American family. I mean, at first, you have a very typical display, especially in the 70s. You've got the very male ego-driven bravado by the father. You've got the very altruistic son that wants to impress his father, but also have his own opinion, very religious mother, and the sister, of course. It's always the woman, especially in the 70s. She's the harlot. She She's the uh, she's a slut. We don't care about her as much character. Even though she's married and has the ditzy, bubbling, bumbling husband, we portray... All the females in this movie almost completely is useless, and it is the atomic American family. It is the idea of what you had in the 70s, a very subservient wife. The son is going to grow up just to be like the dad, and obviously he's he's a cop. He just retired. They gave him his own gun. He's a wonderful, heroic, perfect— Well, not only that, like, just to interrupt you for a second, Robbie is—the way he's portrayed, I don't know how much Wes wanted to put that out there, but the way he's portrayed is he's, he's effeminate— Big Bob does not like an effeminate son because he's not able to and it the toxic masculinity in that family really affects him because like he starts breaking down. I've just got to protect my family and he just can't hold it together. And that's viewed as being a problem in this family at the like where we're at. Like that would be fucking terrible for anybody to deal with. Of course, you're going to break down, but he's not allowed to break down. You're not allowed to show emotion. And look what happens when Big Bob doesn't break down and marches off into the middle of nowhere. But then you get the representation of the cannibals and and the whole uh, dystopic family living out in the wasteland, and instantly they're all awful. You don't get a little bit of a backstory. You finally, what, a quarter of the way from the movie, Fred, John Steadman's character, allows you to know what happened with Papa Jupe and that... It's the the whole land had been used for atomic testing by the U.S. Army, something coincidentally that uh, one of the stars of the movie, Michael Berryman, lived through and was affected by in real life. And the whole mutation and the whole point of them just being evil directly relates back to the U.S. government and it being a bombing range and them not telling people about it. And you, I think at that point, needed a little bit more clarity with sympathy. I don't think you need to look at these people as completely evil because it's one of those situations like Custer's Last Stand. Now, it was a military operation and you're supposed to be backing the U.S. Army. They all fucking deserved what they got. Every single person that got scalped that day, they they deserved what happened. You've got the Wood family and you don't want to say that they are colonialists that are coming in and they're invading, but essentially they are. And... No matter what happens and how much you're rooting for them to save the baby and how awful it is for them to kill the dog, you invaded the native land and it's not the natives' fault. It's not their fault they live that way. It's not their fault that they are that way. And when you pressure and push and try and force a society to change, of course there's going to be repercussion. 
man, I'm looking into this very deeply. <laughs> but at the same time, you've got a whole concept more than cannibals are just eating people in the Nevada desert. There's a, I mean, that's the second movie. It's a race, and then cannibals are eating people in the desert. Michael Berryman somehow survived. That's Hills Have Eyes 2. Well, the only thing that's really, again, separating these two families is society. The idea of um, a society that's keeping the structure together. But once those societal norms are broken down, we all resort, we all end up resorting to violence. It's this primordial thing with and us all that we must protect the ones that we love, yada, yada, yada. And both sides are doing the exact same thing. So there's nothing that separates these two families that is that great other than just some societal bullshit. Well, the Wood family never kidnapped a girl. I mean, you do have Ruby. That whole character is a true thing to have sympathy for because she has been stolen and added into the, I call them the planet family. I don't know what else to call them because they're named all after planets, but she's part of this planet family, whether she likes it or not. I guess my point is they did what they had to do to survive. They kidnapped her to survive, probably for breeding, probably for whatever else, but it's all about survival. And when we are broken down and we just have to survive, what links will we go to, to survive? And class really is this thing that is meaningless at the end of the day the thing that's really separating these two classes is really incidental bullshit. And they are all basically the same to a different extremes, mind you. But at the end of the day though, they are all basically the same, which carries on, I think throughout all of the body of, of Wes Craven, even some of the more simplistic and dumber ones. Like, I mean, it's not dumb, but serpent and the rainbow still carries that emphasis. I think everything I can't vouch for scream three and four, but I think, I mean, even Scream itself, a lot of the characterization and what is missed and the emphasis on that movie is they are all faceless, beautiful, rich kids. They have no personalities. They just have a stylized, super nice hair. That's it. It doesn't matter who dies because at the end of the day, it's all the same faceless kids that will be replaced by another generation of faceless people. But hey, that's Scream. Scream is a lot how a lot about how media can manipulate our personalities and who we are as people. But that's a completely different sociological concept. But it, I mean, it can kind of meld in there as well. And I mean, if we want to move on a little bit, a movie we won't be talking about too much. But uh, Wes Craven made Deadly Blessing, and there's a religious aspect of a whole entire religious cult living on this land and seeing that this is their area and you do not bring your futuristic concepts, your <laughs> whatever you would call it, like the um, your modern sacrilegious bullshit on them and they're going to protect their people. It goes in a lot of different places, though, because this movie is incredibly messy and I don't think Wes really decided where he wanted to go with it, but I, has, I think it has a lot of themes that he didn't fully explore particularly. But... I think it kind of somewhat fits into that class thing because, you, again, you have a group of people who are one way and a group of the people Hittites. who are more modern who are coming in, and it's these two groups that are clashing. And then there's spiders in the mouse and an incubus that's born and a lot of Borg nines jerking off in the corner. A lot of different stuff's going on in this movie. Everything is completely muddled, and, and the point, I think, is very obvious, but a lot of the issues is, like, for one, the fact that Wes Craven decided to make this clan of people. They're the Amish, are Mennonites, but he calls them the Hittites. 
yes, the biblical Hittites, they have somehow survived. And the entire point is a lot of xenophobia or not being able to draw your norms to somebody else's, despite the fact that it's all the same religion. And I mean, to an extent, I wouldn't say the Catholics and the Amish are the same, but it's all the same God and it's all the same ending for all of these people. And, and it's you... all the same concept and people are constantly doing battle over the same concept, even though it's all the same fucking thing. Hey, there's a God and uh, he loves us, but he only loves me in a specific way. If I do these specific things and the specific things that you're supposed to do are kind of different than mine. So it's different. It, it's kind of like where we're at modern in modern times where the uh, incoming president is Joe Biden, and he's Catholic. And that's a problem for a lot of Christians because Catholics ain't Christians. Well, it's, it's kind of the same, isn't it? No, it's different. Well, the last time we had a Catholic president, he got shot in the fucking head. So maybe this time we can do something different with the acceptance of, of people in general. But that, too, falls very short with Deadly Blessing because you're presented this whole ostracized culture, this whole religious culture that's living pure and clean on the outskirts of society. But instantly, it's almost like uh, your display of how you're introduced to Krug and Company and all the star family, the planet family in The Hills Have Eyes. You get just a vulgar display of, I guess that's the term tonight, a vulgar display of Ernest Borgnine being an asshole. It's them very against the people who are commonplace seem to be doing nothing wrong. But a driving factor of this story is there is not an incubus. Is it is it an incubus or succubus? I don't know. It's a fucking demon at the end. There's a lot of bullshit going on in this that doesn't need to be there. The entire movie, you're just like, wow, these guys are dicks and they're just stuck on their ways and have this demon they keep talking about. But no, I guess the demon's real. Like, it is an actual part of the movie. You had pointed out it doesn't really seem clear what the direction Wes Craven wanted to go to in this situation. This was a period, though, where Wes didn't have much control, and he was the guy who made Hills Have Eyes and Last House on the Left, so he was getting directed jobs, much like Toby Hooper, who was getting a lot of directing jobs, and he was getting fucking fired left and right from everything, and Wes Craven just was, like, having to make all kinds of movies where he wasn't comfortable, they didn't give him the time, they gave him the money, they would always change, like, well, this is the script I wrote, well, we want to do something different now. He capitulated to a lot of the demands, though, and ended up making shit like Hills Have Eyes 2, which he was completely unhappy with, and then they had to cut in a bunch of fucking flashbacks to pad out the movie because, like, he basically said, I'm fucking done with this. So, I mean, it's a messy time for Wes Craven, definitely. And you really have just an incomplete product. It almost feels reminiscent of something like The Devil's Reign, and despite that feeling like an incomplete product, it's a much more wholesome one at the end of the day than what you're left with, Deadly Blessing. The best part about it probably is the very few short minutes you have of Michael Berryman returning in a Wes Craven film. He plays, I, I guess, a, a child-like member of this commune, and that's a poor word to use, but that's what I'm going to stick with, and is quickly, quickly killed off way before he needs to. Borgnine hardly appears in it. He was in his trailer masturbating the entire time is is all I can come up with. But it's not... I masturbate a lot. I'm not, like, I, I brought this up at the beginning of the show. I'm not a big Wes Craven guy, and I still won't call this a bad movie. It's hard to fucking sit through, and I think the... I, I just recently saw this for the very first time for this episode, and I texted you the the entire movie like, This sucks! This is fucking What the fuck dumb. is even going on? And that's it's hard to like tell you what's going on because like I don't know because it's just messy because there's just a lot of fucking cooks in the kitchen in this one and just a lot of people not wanting to give up on 
weird little ideas they had to throw in. It's just, uh, it's not great, but we've talked about way long. I thought we would talk about it. The very first thing you're going to want to do is Google what a Hittite is, and I'll, I'll stop you before you have to do it. Same ones from the Bible. They aren't around anymore. It's just not a thing. He's using words and terms, and it's Professor Wes Craven uh, at his finest here. Too many cooks in the kitchen is the best way to describe deadly blessing next we go to uh west craven's most popular film of all time which is nightmare on elm street and the basic idea of nightmare on elm street is white middle class motherfuckers who have no idea how to deal with their problems or talk to their children and that's really what nightmare on elm street is about yeah there's a, a child killer dream demon or whatever the fuck but i mean that pales in comparison to what it's really about is just Parents who do not know how to relate to their children, do not know how to deal with their problems. I mean, for God's sakes. When you watch the movie as an adult, Freddy Krueger almost seems to be a backseat driver. The entire character doesn't even have a a massive appearance in the movie. And I found myself, uh, I'll be honest here, I'm not a massive fan of Wes Craven. I haven't watched Nightmare on Elm Street since I was maybe 16 and I'm 30. I'm 30 something. I'm going to put in some faith no more into this episode. And I hadn't watched the film in a long time, and I was astounded going through it of, wow, this is a movie of parents just don't understand. Holy shit. If they'd have listened to their kids fucking one time, nothing bad would have happened. Well, white middle class people know best, Hank. Don't you understand that no matter what I say goes, because I I own this house. This house is a very nice house, so whatever I say goes. Out of all of Wes Craven's films, I think this ends the most disheartening with literally parents just don't understand. And the the best emphasis of that is something you and I were texting about beforehand is parents just don't get it that you have a great sequence in this movie where uh, Glenn's father, Johnny Depp, in his uh, virginal role, his father just grabs the phone while Nancy's trying to call Heather Camp's Nancy to get attention that he's going to be killed by Freddy Krueger. You just got to be stern with those kids. That's the point. And it's not just some, like, 80s tough love. I was a latchkey kid bullshit. It is the general non-understanding of parents from every generation. I mean, at this point, what, is is Wes Craven a boomer? I guess he, uh, no, he's pre-boomer. He's born in the late 30s, 1939, in Cleveland, Ohio, I do believe. He was was able to see between the lines. And that's one of the things that is really hip and works with The Nightmare on Elm Street. Again, a theme for this night, Wes Craven remakes that don't work. One of the things that was really missed was the catapulting. It's a class thing and it is your parents, but when you're living in a bubble, when you're a kid and you're living in this world, all you have is the faith that your parents are right. And when you grow up, you take that faith from your parents and you just, you know, the government's not going to fuck me. They're my government. They're going to take care of me. All of it can be kind of extrapolated into something much bigger and a bigger concept when you look at this movie of putting your trust completely in the wrong place and realizing maybe you should just believe in yourself because at the end of the day, all dreams are are dreams. You you can you can do it. And that's kind of almost a weird pseudo like hippie thing that you get at the end of this movie when Nancy realizes you're just a dream and makes it all stop. But does it stop? Cause the ending really is fucking a downer. <laughs> it's a little bit vague yeah. in the ending, but I mean, Who that's knows? somewhat how the, uh, the script and the story but that's is the design of Wes Craven. I mean, everything is kind of vague. Uh, the Hills have eyes. Are they going to just go back to, I mean, apparently they go back to a normal life and Bobby becomes a fucking 
motorcross yeah their life is fine special gasoline whatever the fuck i'm sure at least the parents from the hills have eyes are miserable i mean in west craven universe everything is very open-ended but i like to think that everyone is kind of left broken i mean those parents from the hills have eyes they're gonna divorce probably they're not (laughs) someone's gonna drink themselves to death and, and shoot themselves it's a mess it's west craven's a sad guy and that's really what's going on in nightmare elm street is Parents didn't get what they wanted. The justice system failed them. So what do they do? They get revenge. And what does revenge do to them? Ruins their child's lives. And their children just go, hey, there's something really wrong going on here. Oh, don't worry about it, sweetie. I'm going to have another drink. You're all fine. We killed them. It's fine. Well, what does she do even outside of that? It's not even just, I'm going to have another drink. She says at her daughter's best friend's funeral, I'm going to get her professional help. And the immediate response, and this was a massive trend in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, my kid's not acting the way I want my kid to act. I'm going to get them put on some speed. I think they need either speed or they need to never move or speak at all. And in Nancy's situation, they dull her senses. They try and just take away every form of emotion. And that it's not just society bearing down on you, but, I mean, really, society has killed... the last 30 generations' childhoods, I mean, from the invention of something like Ritalin, you don't need to be putting your kid on small doses of meth because, oh, well, they're ADHD. Figure out something for yourself and don't just instantly blame and put blame on other things, and that's all that we're given with the parents in this situation is, well, my life has sucked, so let's blame the kid for it. You know, you're not speaking the truth. You need help. You need to get help because you don't see things my way, and that's a problem. I guess really it's as much as we've gone on about it, it's not so much about class as as much as how fucked up the middle class is because they view the world in one specific way. And once you break that paradigm, then everything starts falling apart for them and they all, always resort to violence. And the same thing happens here is they resort to violence. They fucking lynch Freddy Krueger because he just as wasn't done in their eyes. And they murder a man for their children and then pretty much ignore their children as they grow up and just, just, you know, just leave me alone. You need to, and that's so much what Nightmare on Street is about is just the forgotten children in the 80s and the middle class in suburbia is you're ignored. And growing up in that lifestyle, that's kind of how it is, is you at a certain point get ignored because the most important thing is you go to college and make money. Just go to college and learn how to make money and everything's going to be fine. Well, most of these people went to college and make money. Not Their lives aren't fine. Their lives aren't fine at all. They were mostly lied to their entire lives. Like, you need to be okay with yourself internally. You need to understand. You need to stop lying to yourself, first of all. That's the most important thing. And I think that's a lot of things going on in Nightmare on Elm Street is Nancy's not lying to herself. So many other people are lying to themselves. She's the only person who's wide fucking awake. While everybody else just... Forget your problems. Just go to college. It'll all be fine. It's not going to be fine. You're still going to have to go out in the world and continue to fight and continue to fight. Don't you think a bit of that is uh, something, I mean, I don't think it's just in the 70s or 80s, but people have children almost like pets. I really want a kid. I want to have a kid. And then they have a child, and for them... I want to teach it to hate the things that I hate. Yeah, I want... That's not how it works. I want to make my arm bigger. I want to just accentuate my grip, and now I have this creature, this this thing in my possession, and I can make it all the things that I wanted to be 
and couldn't, and then impose all my beliefs on it. And you've got with Nancy somebody that does not agree with anything. And it's not like, I'm an anarchist, I'm going to become a fucking punker, mom. It's somebody that just wants to have their own existence. And uh, there's a scene that has always kind of taken me aback when it's right toward the beginning and she, Heather Langkamp's Nancy decides to get Glenn, Johnny Depp, to help her be a guard in a dream. And she says right before she decides this and goes to sleep, God, I look like a 20-year-old. Do you ever, do you remember that? Do you remember being young enough to go, I look like I'm 20? There's this this idea, I think, that's perfect in this movie in how how we as a culture betray our youth and we we don't care about them. We instantly, you turn 15, 16, and it's like, well, you got to start doing this and you got to learn responsibility and you got to do this, 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 and this. We give no opportunity for our young people to even learn who they are or what they're interested in or what their fucking personalities are before it becomes this instant crushing capitalist boot. Like, you have to do this. If you don't do this, you're not going to get Social Security. And if you don't do this, you're not going to be anything. But we don't ever teach people or let people be themselves or learn who they are. And I think all these characters, though, I mean, Tina, Nancy, Glenn, uh, Rod, everyone is such a different culture, a different uh, play. Like, Rod is very similar to the Phyllis character. And really, with A Nightmare on Elm Street, it's almost like a perfect sequel to Last House on the Left with uh, the parents' blind hatred and their incessant need for their children to be exactly as they are, what you have is the repercussion. And I guess, to the connection with Krug and Kruger. So, pacha! Cut to modern day life, and what's the biggest thing in the conservative world is, I want to send my kid to a private school. I want to send them to a private college that doesn't teach them a liberal you mean teach them about how the world works and how other cultures and other people act? Yeah, we don't know. We need to keep them pure. We need to keep them pure and Christian and conservative, and they shouldn't learn new things. You always have this little pretense with something like that of, I want to give them the better life than I had. And w so what? You're just like shipping them off and forcing them away to be this product of society that you never were, and they aren't even going to be a product of you. Wouldn't you want your child, your children, your future, the future of this world, nation, country, the whole fucking human race to be a product of you? I mean, if you consider yourself like a loving, kind, artistic, beautiful person, wouldn't you rather your child be a product of you than a product of its own society? Or rather, wouldn't you want your society to be a product of your children? Now that's a fucking concept. Or don't you want really, I mean, in all actuality, don't you want your children to be better not just you, not just exposing the same idea, belief system. Don't you want to have things progress, perhaps, for like your children to be actually better than you, like mentally, not just fucking financially, like emotionally and mentally better than you, and like actually able to make some sort of future change in the world as opposed to just locking them behind bars in your house and say, Nancy, it's going to be okay if you just go to sleep and just let everything wash over you. Well, it's not okay. It's not going to be okay. Let me fucking break out and do what I have to do. Well, even a more no, important no. question, wouldn't you want your children to be genuinely and generally happy? I mean, well, I... That's not important, Hank. Happy is not important in the modern world. But that's a whole concept, I think, that even in the small universe that we're presenting with Wes Craven, looking at the parents in the last three movies, we've got Last House on the Left, we've got A Nightmare on Elm Street, and then we have The Hills Have Eyes all of the parents suffer the same problem. 
And when like I was talking about how they just can't stand the idea of her going out with Phyllis and the dad, you've got that whole tits scene where the dad so well, what are these tits? And What's it's this about tits. But I mean, you it sounds joking and it sounds kind of lighthearted and it's fun. But what you have to really examine right there is his he's. He's a fucking square and he's trying to fit in and they've given this great thing of the little hippie uh, pendant that they've given her. You're a wild child, but you're still a 24 karat gold wild child. Don't forget that. And the same thing when you move into the whole display of the gun in The Hills Have Eyes. I got this because I was a pig for blah, 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 blah. Look how cool I am. It's got a red, white, and blue hilt on it. All of these things are false trophies I mean and that's one of the things that you've got from the last generation everybody gets a participation trophy everybody just gets something for existing what's the fault in actually getting something for existing I mean nobody begged and uh, philosophically begged I have to be born and I want to be a part of this planet I want to be a part of this culture you can't continuously try and make a mold you can't keep saying over and over and over again you have to do this and this is the way you are and this is the way things are and if you don't do it you're just going to die that's blind propaganda and lying to the one thing that matters most the future and no matter what you can hate kids and say you don't want them but still the future of all of our generations obviously is children that's how things work you know i believe the children are future teach them well and let them lead the way do not be uh john saxon show them all the beauty they possess inside Give them a sense of pride. Make it easier. Sexy I, I don't know. I kind of want to be John Saxon, though. I don't want to be his character, but I just want to be John Saxon. I want to be John Saxon and enter the dragon before he dies. <laughs> I just want to be John Saxon in general. But he's dead now, so I guess before he dies. <laughs> well, obviously, you know, we have a whole can of worms open here, and there is... A point to all of this it's not like it's 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 picking straws that there are really relevant themes that once you're exposed to i think are, are really common throughout the entire body of wes craven's work from the beginning until even some of the stuff we've excluded i mean as we're talking unfortunately i, I brought it up earlier shocker goddamn fits but i don't want to talk about shocker <laughs> yeah i don't want to talk about shocker either i mean the, like the revelation i'm coming up with while we're doing the show is it's so much about how dumb and hopeless middle-class white people are. That's so much what's going on in Wes Craven's work, even down to Deadly Friend, even like just people who are like holding on to a death grip to this idea of who they are. And it's like, but that's not who you are. I mean, you're one step away from being a, a vicious psychopath. No, I'm not. You really are, given the circumstances. So stop trying to hold on to this concept of who and what you are because you're many things. You're many different things. I always like to sound philosophical, learned, and mystical, all while speaking on Death by DVD. But I've got to say, quite frankly, the only thing that I've learned from Wes Craven has been expounded upon at about three minutes with The Fresh Prince and DJ Jazzy Jeff. Parents just don't understand. Parents just don't understand. All right. Is this the last movie we'll be talking about? I think we're on the last movie, and I'll start this one off with my favorite Wes Craven movie. Well, it's the most obvious of what Wes Craven is, what we've been talking about this entire time, the most obvious as far as sociologically what he's trying to say, because it is hit, it is blatant what this movie is about, about a bunch of 
fucking conservative white assholes who look like uh, fucking Ronald and Nancy Reagan who are fucking like regentrifying the the fucking hood and like with their Christian values really fucking up a lot of fucking people. There's a lot more to than just that, and uh, you know obviously we're talking about Red Eye. Sorry. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, clearly, if you couldn't guess it, we're talking about Red Eye. No, people under the stairs from 1991. I think what you're introduced to uh, with this movie is, is the exact same thing we've been introduced to with everything else, but finally the reversal that we've been waiting for. Because you've got Brandon Quentin Adams' character full, and you see his life. You see his mother is sick. You see that they're living in the projects, and things are are just not good. His mother's dying. They're going to be evicted unless they come up with a certain amount of money. And his sister's boyfriend, Leroy, played by the wonderful Ving Rhames. Uh, this is right around the time when he did Patty Hearst for Paul Schrader. Super buff, fucking looked amazing. Uh, it's a shame that Ving Rhames didn't end up becoming more of a powerhouse leading male actor. And movies like this, he you can really see he is incredibly versatile. And he plays a very black and proud man that is living in the L.A. suburbs and is tired of being stepped on, is is tired of being a victim of fascism, and he's very into the Pan-African movement, and you're introduced right there to the difference. And I think coming from Wes Craven, this is something that is almost uncomfortable, that a, a mainstream lead movie, everyone is black. And I don't think average horror white audience members... Are, could connect a, a right away to that. And I, I really think it, it does come down to what most horror audience are, which is white cis men between like 25 and 30 something Rob Zombie type people. And you are given a plight that is unknown to them. It's like a Friday movie. It's gangsta. It's hood. And it's all the wrong way that you need to look at this. Well, I mean, it's in this movie, it's just so blatant of what he's doing is, the like the basically the parents from a nightmare on Elm Street, these white, somewhat well off people are fucking everyone else over and fucking up and children should be seen and not heard. Quite literally what they're like what they say in the movie. They the children aren't doing what they want. Ah, well, fucking cut their tongue out. He talked too much. Put them under the stairs. Put them in the basement with the rest of them. What's well, not even like it's their children. Child. I mean, there's so much I mean, I, trying to talk about the plot and ploy of this movie and getting into what happens is even a hard thing to articulate because Fool and Leroy, Ving Rhames, and Brandon Quentin Adams end up invading this house who you find out is the owners pretty much of their entire neighborhood. And and as you've been going into, they're awful people that are... It's not just gentrification. It's it's a point of torture. Like, it's almost the p- pure well, idea mean, of what, colonialism. What is gentrification, though? Basically torture. Yeah, I mean, it's colonialism at itself, though, and that's really what you're exposed to here, is it's like the conquistadors moving in and just saying, this is ours now, and this is what we're doing, and if you can't pay, you you die. And it's not like it's their children that shouldn't be seen or not heard. They've been actively kidnapping and stealing people off the street to make their own super white, perfect family, and if things don't work out the right way... You get your tongue cut off and shoved into the basement unless you escape and live in the walls like Sean Whalen, who plays Roach, my favorite character. And it's very, like, specific things go on in the film, such as their quote-unquote daughter running into Fool, and as soon as Fool has any interaction with her, she's now filthy. Uh, A black man has come in contact with her daughter, now she's a dirty fucking One of them! 
one of them came in contact with her daddy. You've got, uh, we can't even just talk about this without bringing up the immaculate performance of who the bad people are. You've got man, played by Everett McGill, and then Wendy Roby is woman, and you may know them infamously and better from Twin Peaks. So I think really, like, Wes Craven pulled from even, like, the zeitgeist of, of culture at the time, what people thought was a really beautiful idea of the American family and turned it into something. I mean, he's a wicked leather daddy running through the halls with a shotgun yelling racial slurs. But like what they're presenting to the outside world is this very wholesome Christian conservative family, but behind closed doors, they are incestuous. He's a fucking weird leather daddy gimp man. They have oh, I have the perfect idea. So if Donald Trump Jr. married his sister and started having children, it would be Everett McGill and Wendy Roby. That's the yes. perfect ideology with who these people are. Because, I mean, if you really look into the conservative movement and you go like a bit of a off topic diatribe, but OK, it's still the same. You have a group of people who are very much on this quest against sex trafficking and pedophilia. Good. Great. We need uh, it's something that needs to be addressed. But. The same group of people, these conservatives, are also in favor of child marriage in an alarming, like, number of fucking, like, people voting for, like, in these different states, like Kansas and shit. Yeah, children children should be able to get married at 13 and 14. Why not? But where's the, you gotta listen to their argument. It's the age of consent, all right? You know, look, it, it ain't child marriage, because in my state... You're a legal adult when you're 15. You still can't vote. You still can't drive a car. Still can't buy cigarettes or alcohol. But you can get married. To we some... can marry you off. We can marry you off to a good man who's going to put a baby in you. That's good Christian living. It's still sex with a child. What are you doing? Don't you understand, I Alexander Nash? It's a white baby. I mean, that's what we need. That's what we got to do. We got to have white babies. And look at what. Yes, the Great Replacement. It's so real. But who are the people under the stairs? They're all these white children that weren't good enough. And it's always unfortunate to have to bring up something like the Holocaust. But look at all the white people that were considered unfavorable because they were Catholic or because they were of Romanian descent or because they were possibly Italian, uh, Irish, Italians, Irish, possible homosexuals, people that were were judged. And I mean, it's it it is something to put some effort and look into, especially with what the United States is doing now, taking children and separating from their parents. And we do tests to determine what they are. And these tests literally are forms of eugenics. And that's what the Nazi party did. They would take a person and they would strip them completely naked and stand them in front of doctors and would examine them. And if your examination came back because you had a swollen lymph node that it was a certain size too big, well, you're a Jew now, and you have to go to a, a, a death camp where you would be completely killed. And, like, with our current moving-in president, Joe Biden, who will be a- elected president in the following few days, one of his promises is, what, 550 children more will be reunited with their families. That's nothing. That's horrifying. Only 550, but there are thousands. There are thousands and thousands that have even been lost, that don't have social security cards. There are illegals that have been rounded up by ICE who will never see their families again. kidnapped and sold off in adoption to white middle-class families and forced to go to a Protestant fucking church. It's very weird and sick. But, you know, at least they're going to church, though. Yeah, and, well, they got a job. People that are literally... 
born into enslavement and get to be a nanny for millionaires their entire life. This is a case that was actually recently found, I think, in Brazil. A child was born to a nanny. The nanny couldn't afford having the child, so the family just took her. And she's in her 30s now, and her entire life has been cooking, cleaning, being a nanny for these people. You can call it indentured servitude all you want to. That's slavery. And it's widely accepted all across the United States, all across the world. The concept of the people under the stairs isn't so far out. And it's, I mean, you can look at either side. You've got the Republicans saying that there are satanic pizza parlors where children are being passed back and forth like $1 bills. But then you have the reality of the situation that sex crimes are, are, are massive. There are even things in, in the, the canon culture of the United States like who killed Sean Benet. Something fishy was going on there. We all know that much, and we don't know what happened. We don't know it what has happened. It was an intruder or someone in her family who had access. <laughs> I mean, like... But again, they're a very rich, upper white-class culture, which is uh, the man and woman in this movie. The police are even called, and everything's fine because they give a clean, clear ap appearance to, it's okay, we are we own land, we, we are good people, and you didn't find anything disgusting. You've got that awesome scene at the beginning of the movie. Key word there, we own land. We have money. We own land. It's That's the important thing. If you own land, you should be allowed to vote. If you pay taxes, you should be allowed to vote. You're not guaranteed a vote just because you're an American. Fuck that. I pay taxes. You don't. My vote counts more. Well, you are shown at the beginning of the movie when Leroy and Full are breaking in and they're in the kitchen that there are flies and just dead bodies of flies stacked up everywhere. They don't clean. They are just awful. Uh, this whole idea that you have of people that live in the inner city, they don't clean, they don't care about their belongings, they, they're just living, they live off welfare, they don't give a shit. So all these rich, white, beautiful households is just filled completely with death and nastiness, and when the police are called, they clean. Immediately they front face and clean the, the few areas that you're going to want to see, and you've got that scene with Everett McGill screaming, well, somebody left the back door open. I don't know. They they should all be downstairs. They don't even have names. They don't even have identities. The humans that have been kidnapped and left to, to rot and turn into freaks under the stairs, it's past the point of even acknowledging our villains as, like, I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't even say they're Republicans. I wouldn't even use a term like right wing. I think this is directly the ideal of the boot, the idea of the boot of capitalism stepping on the throat of modern America. The bourgeoisie. Yeah, I mean, it. This is, uh, you know, the the communist manifesto for Wes Craven. Maybe the communist manifesto of Wes Craven's work uh, is a bit too much, but still, I think there's a really eye-popping idea that is in your face with the people under the stairs, and it's much more than cause and effect. It's much more than it's an entertaining horror movie, which most people don't feel that way. I think this is one of the most disliked Wes Craven films. It's my favorite, and thankfully... I saw in the theater, I didn't really get it back then. Um, I was, God, I don't know, I was probably fucking 12, and it, I just didn't like... It was just like, this is kind of fucking hokey. But over the years, I've get, like gained a new appreciation for the film because I really started like leaning into the themes a lot more and actually understanding what he was trying to say. I think what you're given here is a very clear example of not just the politics, but I, I do think keeping and coining the name of the show, the philosophy of Wes Craven and what is very clear cut and I think what is acknowledged is the difference people have in one another. The N-word is used poisonously in this movie and when it is used especially by Everett McGill it is so incredibly effective that I think it cuts through you 
and it stings, and it, that's that's the reasoning why it was used. It's not like a, a sheer entertainment value when it comes to somebody like Quentin Tarantino. I know black people, so I'm allowed to use the word. In this instance, it's something that is effective and is hurtful, and I hope would make people realize how awful it is to be viewed as a, a, a different class by society. It's not necessarily a white or black thing. I think what Wes Craven was trying to show here is how ugly people can be when they're given that idea of false hope. Uh, and that idea of false hope being, somebody's going to steal this from me. And really ugly, how ugly they are behind closed doors. And that's, I think, a lot of what Wes Craven was trying to say in a good portion of his movies is just the rot that's in most white societal class, like, you know, mid to upper class people that there's just, they're really like, just because you have money, just because you have certain amount of status, it doesn't particularly mean anything. You, you can just, you can be just as brutal as any other person, no matter what, no, like a hillside cannibal, a child murderer in themselves, a, um, all these like different people who can be perceived to be as villains, but, we all can be villains in our own right. So at the end of the day, I think there's a lot more to Wes Craven than meets the eye. And some of the things we managed to present and showcase tonight, I hope give a clear idea. I think all of this is really relevant in, in all of his work. And we touched upon it earlier, movies like Scream 1 through 4. It's there. The empty, glass-eyed look at culture is there. And, and personally, I feel Wes Craven seemed like a very jaded man. I think he was somebody that early on learned the trick and learned that there's not much to life outside of tricks, outside of magic, outside of faking your appearance or faking it till you make it. And he didn't ever seem to do that. I mean, he sold out a handful of times. Sure, he can be accused of something like that. But as a whole, Wes Craven is a master of horror. He is immaculate at his trade. Fantastic editor. I'll always hand that to him, especially something like Friday the 13th, which he didn't do, especially something like Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> he manages to capture fear. He manages to show you what needs to be shown. All the nuts and bolts are taken out. He gives you a very fast product, a smooth product. Long live Wes Craven. It's a shame he's gone. This, this modern era of politics, I think a lot of people we adored, like Toby Hooper, George Romero, Wes Craven, they would have relished to make a product in such an ugly, ugly era. But two, we can go back and look at their work. Is there anything different in Day of the Dead? Is there anything different in Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Is there anything different in Last House on the Left than what's happening right now? Hell, Land of the Dead, man. Everybody just needs to go back to work and open things back up. So us in this ivory tower can just continue to live our lives and ignore that there's a problem at all. It baffles me how modern horror fans can sit and watch movies like that and still be right wing. I I won't turn this into a personal political debate, but you really look at Dennis Hopper and Land of the Dead and see something appetizing out of that? All right, you're on the wrong side of history, and I'm so sorry. I'm sorry, and I hope your family had a child that lived. <laughs> That's it. That's the end. Show's over. Ladies and gentlemen, this was Philosophy of the Dead. We are happy to bring this back to you, and I've said a few times, 2021 Death by DVD. We've got a whole bunch of cards up our sleeve. They're all Joker cards, though, and I do apologize for that. 
Stay tuned. The ashtray is full and the bottle is empty. We'll see you next week. On the next episode, the return of everyone's favorite game, Keith David or David Keith. And I'm sure at some point they'll talk about a movie. Death by DVD. New episodes available every Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Episodes always available to stream and download first on our website, www.deathbydvd.transistor.fm. of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. Yeah.